Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 141. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. We are here this week to discuss The Princess Diaries to Royal Engagement. Yeah, this sounds like it's going to be awesome. Um, This, I have to say, without even watching the film, um, it just seemed to me like you're very stereotypical sequel that didn't really need to be made but there's dollar signs attached to this so they went ahead with it anyway does does the title does the title just make it sound really cheesy i'm really glad that you brought this up because that was something that always bothered me you you know what's gonna happen it's like santa claus 3 the escape clause you know it's just these like hokey uh titles that they give to these sequels that you just kind of roll your eyes and go oh no well not not necessarily i mean yes the escape clause is very hokey but it doesn't give away what's going to happen in the film this i mean unless they're alluding to clarice and joe which i don't think that they are i don't think so you're giving away exactly what's going to happen why why couldn't it be like escape to genovia or something like that that would have grabbed me it that would have been equally bad. It could have just been Princess Diaries. Too. I don't mind the cheese factor, but just anything but this would have been better. All right. So this film was set five years after the original, but it was released only three years after the first one was made. And I posed the question before, was it a necessary sequel? That is what we are here to discuss. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. As Princess Mia's 21st birthday approaches, so does the potential start date uh, for her as the Queen of Genovia, but law states that an unwed woman can't be queen, so the search for a husband is on. Oh, boy. Meanwhile, Viscount Mabry and his nephew, Nicholas, whom Mia has already met, seek to steal her crown because somewhere, some way, they go over it in the film. It's very convoluted, but Nicholas is an heir to the throne through blood, and somehow nobody seemed to realize this. Parliament gives Mia 30 days to find a husband, and Queen Clarice invites Mabry and Nicholas to stay at the palace so she can keep an eye on them. Because, like I said, you'd think that they knew that there was an heir already, and this person came out of nowhere, so she doesn't trust them. Lily surprises Mia with a visit, and together, along with the Queen and Joe, narrow down Mia's search to Andrew Jacoby, the Duke of Kenilworth, uh, Kenilworth, whom almost immediately becomes engaged to Mia. Mabry and Nicholas remain steadfast in their pursuit of the crown, so Nicholas attempts to seduce Mia while Mabry does everything in his power to sabotage her image. Their attempts 
initially fail, really, as the public takes to Mia, although as time goes on, Mia does start to take to Nicholas. He takes to her as well and tells his uncle that he will no longer pursue the crown because he feels guilty for what they are doing to Mia. And he basically tells Mia the same thing, that he is bowing out gracefully. The two agree to meet one more time, but this time Mia stays out all night and falls asleep with Nicholas under a tree. Nicholas's uncle tips off the paparazzi who films the entire thing. Mia becomes so enraged because she believes that Nicholas set her up and that he was lying the entire time and attempts to run damage control with Clarice and Andrew. The two realize that they don't love each other, this is Andrew and Mia, but agree to partake in the marriage anyway to ensure Mia becomes queen. Mia's mother arrives in Genovia for the wedding along with Patrick and their newborn son. On the day of the wedding, a housekeeper at the palace tells Nicholas that Mabry sent the press, so he heads off to the wedding to expose Mabry and clear his name to Mia, although what he doesn't know is that Joe has already told Mia the same thing. So while walking down the aisle, Mia realizes she can't marry Andrew and calls on the Genovian law to be changed, which Parliament eventually agrees to. Instead, it is Clarice and Joe who are married. Shortly before her coronation, Nicholas tells Mia that he loves her, and Mia gets a double foot-popping kiss and is named Queen the following day. Good for you on the double foot pop there. I mean, she flung her shoes. She double foot popped. And then I think she even kind of pedaled her feet in the air. I'm glad but that Chris was not wasted Pine on you. Chris Pine has this effect on women. <laughs> so you mentioned the time jump before that real time it was only three years, but they fast forward ahead to college graduation. I actually think that works in the film's favor because would we really have wanted to see the end of high school and, you know, not much would have progressed from Mia being 15, 16, finding out she's a princess to painstakingly making her way through the rest of high school. Now knowing this and everybody else knows too. So you have to imagine that Lana didn't make things easier on her. And that's what I'm saying. You have to imagine. I I didn't need to see that play out all over again. No, it would have been much of the same, and it wouldn't have done anything to really drive the story forward. The other payoff is that mom dating a teacher was not a fluke. I know that was something that bothered you quite a bit about the first one. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it worked out for her. It doesn't change the fact that it made no sense in the first movie. No, it was just conflict for conflict's sake. But, I mean, that's another good reason to establish the chime jump. They have a baby now. Does right. Mia need a brother? Does he do anything for the story? No and no, but... But here we are. Exactly. Okay. Speaking of here we are, we finally get to Genovia. And for a film franchise... I guess I feel comfortable enough calling it a franchise because we only have two, but supposedly they want to make a third. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but we're going to just call it a franchise or call it a series, whatever you want. For a series that I think does a very nice job with its sets and its costumes as well, because I think the costumes in this movie are really good, as are the sets. What I can't get past 
is we finally see Genovia for the first time. Like, I don't know, downtown Genovia. Panera bread. Yes, I have Panera (laughs) much as my note because the product placement in this scene in particular is jarring. Like, it doesn't bother me in Captain America when he's in Times Square because you know that's what Times Square is. But I just felt like in this scene in particular, if they had a square inch of space to use, they were slapping a sponsorship on it. Yeah, it was not done tactfully at all whatsoever, especially because Genovia is supposed to be a small European country, but it's kind of nondescript as to exactly where it is. And you hear it in all of the languages that they speak. They pull from French, they pull from Italian. Yes. And you can see it in all of this signage that there's different languages, but then it's Panera. Right, and some of them have an American accent, some of them have a British accent. I mean, I I don't know where Genovia is. And the annoying paparazzi, she's like she's Scottish. Scottish. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it's just, it's kind of weird. Like, I, I kind of got the feeling that they were like, you know, Europe. Y- you know, Europe. Well, actually, I mean, I, I'm okay with the nondescript Europe because it kind of... You know, it it makes it seem more, I mean, obviously it's much more inclusive, but I feel like it speaks to Mia's character more that she is trying to bring the peace amongst so many people. So I'm, I'm totally fine with that. And, it, it you know, it appeals more to the masses. So that doesn't bother me. But, yeah, Panera stand, stands out like a sore thumb. For sure. Um, all right, so we get this scene where... It's, it's just, it, I don't, it wasn't the Independence Day. It was just a ball. They were just it having a ball. It was her 21st birthday. That's right. It was her 21st birthday. It was birthday. like her coming out party, basically. Okay. You get the string cheese joke recycled from the first film. Okay. Pretty funny. Um, what I did think was hilarious here is the trading of the dancers. All of these lords and princes that are trying to dance with her. You get the one that's like 12 years old. But she is just so uncomfortable. You, we know she's awkward. They shoved it down our throat in the first movie. and But actually, she's become more comfortable in her own skin. And you kind of see that early on in the film. But getting this treasure trove of horrendous dancers, this motley crew of royalty that is just being thrown at her, I thought was very funny. I agree, especially, you know, and you got to give Anne Hathaway credit, too, with the physical comedy in this scene. There's mm-hmm. that one really tall guy that leans over her and she's got a backbend. That was all really funny, but I feel like there were actually two things that very much distracted me. Number one, she literally just got here. Girl hasn't even had a chance to unpack yet, which... I mean, I guess I'll buy because anytime her grandmother throws her into a situation, Paolo is there and, and he can just have her ready in three seconds. Which, by the way, I feel like they came out too strong because even though it's Mia's 21st birthday, Anne Hathaway looks absolutely stunning in that red dress with her hair. I mean, I know, again, they were doing the callback to Pretty Woman, but I feel like she looks even better here than she does on the wedding day and coronation day 
yeah, I think of all of the outfits that they put her in, and, and they're all very nice outfits. Yeah, this is the one where she looks the best for sure. Yeah, I feel like they should. I mean, the coronation day, she looks beautiful, too, but I feel like they should have saved the best for last. But whatever. It's her 21st birthday, even though this is probably the worst 21st birthday that Mia could have ever possibly imagined. The other thing that is very distracting to me in this scene, and I know we got a name and we got to give her a little screen time, but Raven narrating the princes takes you out of the moment with how funny the physical comedy is. She's kind of giving us the dirt and gossiping about the prince's background, whoever Mia's dancing with, yeah, yeah, yeah. to some of the other princesses. And it kind of reminds me of, you remember in Titanic when Rose takes Jack to the first class dinner? Yeah. And she's trying to level with him by giving him the dirt on everybody in the room? Mm-hmm. I think that's what they were going for. But the thing is, none of these princes are being announced to go up and dance with her. So the fact that Raven is just standing in a corner talking smack just pulls me right out of it. So here's the thing. I agree with you. Um, it doesn't bother me so much, but it it really almost serves no purpose because after this, with the exception of Nicholas, yes. we don't see them again. Like, I would have rather... I mean, yeah, you know you're going to get Lily back in this film and she's going to come for a visit in some capacity. Sure. But they plant the seed that Anne Hathaway's character is friends with the Raven Simone character. So if Raven's character had played more of a role in this and it was her with Lily and uh, Mia that were sorting through the princes or the royalty or whatever you want to call them later in the film, because you have dukes and lords and whatever, that's where I think it would have been funny with her dishing the dirt on them because it's now serving a purpose. Perhaps all of them are getting a chance to court her, you know, like we've seen in Aladdin, right? Like all of these princes were trying to court Jasmine. You could have kind of played with that idea and it would have been very funny because I think Raven Simone would have been very good in that role. Right. And sort of being like the third buddy in the group with sort of her gossipy sense of humor because she's they're doing it here in this scene, but it doesn't really go anywhere because other than Nicholas, you don't see any of them ever again. Right. And if she was in that scene, that would have been even more appropriate to have like your fun gossipy sleepover. Yeah. And instead, Joe is the one that has all the dirt on the princess, which I do think that works. is equally funny. It is equally funny. But it would have been a better place for Raven. You're absolutely right. Okay. Moving on to where Parliament is meeting with Queen Clarice. The whole concept behind this sort of seems absurd to me. I understand you are not going to kill Julie Andrews off in a Disney film. <laughs> I get it. God forbid. I didn't know that a queen could just stop. I, I kind of felt like that. it's my assumption, and perhaps I'm not up on my royal families. Yeah, like UK so listeners, much. help us out here if we're wrong. Be, listen, the American listeners can tell us more about the royal family than the UK listeners because Americans are obsessed with the royal family. I did not know that that was not a lifetime commitment 
I was under the impression that it was. I and I get it. Disney can take a little liberty, but I, mean, I feel yeah, like that's a their own country here, big right? thing to mess with. Yeah. But that's also, I mean, we're assuming that because Julie Andrews is an English actress that we're following English tradition here. It's Genovia. Maybe, maybe you can retire in Genovia, and that's the thing. But, I, I mean, I get it. The whole point is that so she can pass the baton to Mia. Sure. Yeah, it, but the whole premise that this Nicholas comes out of nowhere. Nobody other than the queen seems to question this. It's not like they do. They don't do a, a DNA test, a blood test. They don't really look into his family tree. It's kind of like they take Mabry at his word and they're like, yeah, okay, cool. So we have, we have the backup. And oh, by the way, you get 30 days where the queen is asking parliament for 90 days for Mia to find a husband. It's not like, no, she get. Her coronation, it's its Genovian tradition that her coronation is on her 21st birthday. It's hurling day. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's not, that that's never clearly defined. It's like, she can take control at 21 sometime, but we're only going to give you 30 days. Like, there was really no time stamp other than the one that they put on it. No, and that would have been a much better story because this is where the the entire movie starts to fall apart on me aside from the fact that how many times has mia visited the palace that she never explored and found a secret passage where she could eavesdrop on parliament like you said how did the the marriage law never come up why are we taking it at face value that there's an heir to the throne with no fact checking that really starts to make the scene crumble but to your point Instead of a marriage, I mean, I, I get what they're trying to do with the feminist movie here yeah, and fine. make it all about Mia taking control and, and being able to rule on her own, which we eventually figure out at the end that she's perfectly capable of doing. Yeah. Okay, fine. But I feel like a better story, instead of putting all of the pressure on with this marriage, maybe she just needs an escort for her coronation that she has to have some sort of long-term relationship and and she needs a man by her side or or maybe even something you know you really want to create a conflict maybe the father's supposed to do it but because she doesn't have her father in her life you need a partner to escort you and the pressure's still on to find someone, but then you could have had this elaborate conflict with well there's an heir to the throne and he wants to try and take it and play the whole thing out with Nicholas's character this way instead of putting all this pressure on with the marriage. Right. But, but the point is you're right about that, but it, there's, there's such a broad timestamp on this. It's not her 21st birthday where she becomes the queen. She can take rule at the age of 21, but it's at the age of 21. It it doesn't say it has to be on that day. There's no end date for Queen Clarice. It's not like, hey, you done at 70, time to go. And oh, by the way, you just happen to be 21 and it's your 70th birthday next week. Uh-oh, we got to find you a husband. Like, th like it, it does not make sense. It's too broad. It's it's way too many questions that they never really 
answer. Right. It should have either been that coronation was the night of her 21st birthday and she took over. And then then it was questioned that she would be ruling without right. a husband. And then it's like, all right, you got it. We'll extend it 30 days as a courtesy. Yes. yes. Rather than this arbitrary, I'm stepping down. And, and it, it's like, we're going to give you a month to pass the baton, a month to train. Which, I don't know, the, the whole thing seems off. Especially because we also don't really get... I mean, we know that she's Mia's been spending her summers in Genovia. So she's been learning the customs, learning how to rule, learning what her responsibilities are going to be. But it still seems like it's her first time here. Yes. They cover the bases because they say that her room was being renovated. But where was she staying before this? It looks like she's couch surfing all over the castle. And then they give her this grand clueless-esque closet that would make Cher Horowitz melt over all of the clothes and the jewelry and this and that. When did Mia care? about fashion that much. I have my own mall. That was such, it was such a trailer moment. That was specifically done to put that in the trailer. And that's all I remember from the trailer, quite honestly. Yeah. But it's so out of character for her. I mean, Lily hiding in the closet. Okay, great. That was fun. But Mia never cared about this stuff. Yeah. Um, for as much good as they did in developing this character and having her grow up and become far more comfortable, situations like that don't help. And and I don't want to jump ahead, but I really question the decision-making. I'm going to put this out there now, but I want to put a pin in it until we actually get down to talking about it. Because, and I understand the whole premise is love for, you know, marry for yourself, marry for love, don't, blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. I, I don't have an issue with the message that this movie is trying to send. However, Princess Mia is a do-gooder. She's a goody two-shoes. Let's call it what it is. She's engaged, and she keeps going back to this other guy who she shouldn't be with, spends a night with him. Where they did do a good job in developing her, it seems like they took one step forward and two steps back. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, it's just questionable character development here. And a lot of that didn't work. I would agree with that. You know, I, I offered the alternative to making it about marriage before. But that's in the world where focusing on the marriage is the better story here. What I would have loved to see play out rather than making it this conflict where she's torn between two guys throughout the course of the film, even though one of them she doesn't really love. We, we also lost the diary element. You know, her big call to action in the first one was when she read her father's words. Right. And that's when she realized that she wanted to fulfill her destiny and step into this role. We don't even see the diary in this film. And I feel like that would have made a much more interesting story where she had that same conflict that her father did 
of choosing love over the throne. And that that is what's happening here. But you just have the third party of where she goes for the arranged marriage. If she had started to fall for Nicholas, but then found out what his ulterior motives were, and then, you know, really got to know him and stripped back the layers and realized he's not such a bad guy, but still had her guard up, I feel like it would have been much more interesting for her to have the diary and like walk in her father's footsteps as she's trying to sort all of this out. And the only conflict you really get is with Parliament and stating this rule. We don't really get any of her responsibility. Like there's more than just the marriage here that she's got to wrap her mind around. And we don't get to see any of it other than her learning how to shoot a flaming arrow through a hoop. Yeah. What I do like that they that they did here was inviting Mabry and Nicholas to stay in the palace. On the surface, it's a really stupid thing. Oh, God. It is a stupid thing. No, I actually... I buy this invitation from Clarice because she's very calculated and she's very smart. And I think she knows she can't trust these two. She knows that behind closed doors, they're dangerous. They can only do so much in front of me. It's like that beware the enemy you don't know. Or friends close, enemies closer. Exactly. I'll buy that, especially because she has Joe watching them as well. But it is Hallmark movie bad the way that me and Nicholas just keep ending up alone together. Yeah, That's what constant. bothers me about it, is right. that he just keeps showing up or he's in the garden reading a book. Mm-hmm. I like the relationship here between Clarice and Mia more than I did in the first movie. And I understand in the first movie they're getting to know each other, and that's all well and good. But I buy them more as a grandmother and a granddaughter in this film than I do in the first. Definitely. Um, with all of that being said, we get the scene where they're narrowing down the princes. They're watching slides of them like Animal House. Um, and yeah, it's Joe that is the one that picks out Andrew. You said it's very funny. I agree. I think it's equally as funny as if they would have played it out with all the Raven Simone stuff. But... With that being said, what I could not really figure out was I th- they dressed him like it's the 1940s all of the time. You're talking about Andrew. Yes. Um see that didn't bother me, especially because part of this conflict is the notion of tradition versus moving forward and and having to address contemporary issues. Yeah, I every time he came on screen I thought I was watching a flashback. That was my only problem with it. Because if I'm being completely honest with you, Andrew ends up being one of the more likable characters in the film. I would agree. You feel bad for the guy. This is what I'm talking about. This is this is where we start to unpack the comment I made before. Because you know that they're going to be rushed into an engagement. And they are. Like, within a day or two, rushed into an engagement. 
But we know that Andrew, one of his hobbies is he loves photography. He takes, I think it was his grandmother's wedding ring or his great-grandmother's wedding ring, and he puts it in the film canister to give to Mia. It is an attempt for us to love this guy, and we do. The problem is you made us like him too much because subconsciously we know she's going to end up with Nick. Right? right, we know this is going to happen. How are we supposed to root for Nick when you made this guy so likable? And in a lot of your decision making, as the film went on, kind of made me a dislikable. I would agree that it made me a dislikable, but you do have to give us a reason to believe that she likes Andrew. Other than, you know, you can't have him be a boring character. You can't have him be Mia 2.0, like what she was before right. she found out she was a princess. Because then it's she, you're never going to believe that she would go for him. What I actually appreciate is that they never got romantically involved. And that their relationship was focused on, we just have to navigate this arranged marriage together and we're going to make it work and that he was able to, and I think that is what makes him so likable is that he's able to level with her in the sense that I love my country so much. I'm going to put that first. And that's the thing, you know, Clarice planted the seed. I had an arranged marriage and I grew to love your grandfather. And I think that that's what Mia's not only hoping is going to happen, but she truly believes that she can make it work and eventually fall in love with this guy. She's just not going to cater to making that happen in 30 days. Right. It's not going to happen overnight. Well, but yet it did with Nicholas. So yet here we go. It did with Nicholas. Um, we get the scene where she is supposed to be riding side saddle. So she knows how to ride a horse, but she doesn't know how to shoot an arrow. I just want to throw that out there. I know how to ride a bike. I can't ride a Harley Davidson. All right, fair. Um, but but this goes against everything where she's not athletically inclined in the first one, and she can barely get through a game of softball. But she can rock climb, but I guess you can also ride a horse, too. Okay, fine. I actually like this trick i think it's a great sight gag it's hysterical the wooden leg that clarice had used and basically all all they do is they hook it onto the saddle and mia would be sitting on the saddle as she regularly would but with this leg it would appear that she is sitting side saddle the whole thing is really funny especially the delivery from julie andrews because that's such I don't want to say a Julie Andrews thing to do because Mary Poppins never did this, but it it's just so on brand across the board because it's the night before Mia actually has to do this. And she's like, oh, no, you don't have to actually sit side saddle. It's uncomfortable. I've never done it. And she's got a, a, le- a name for the leg. Yeah. Um, I, I love just the, the I got this moment. Right. And at the same time, the joke kind of becomes ruined when maybe uh Mabry gives one of the guards just this stupid rubber snake 
Because somehow he knew that Mia's horse specifically is afraid of snakes. And the guy basically kind of like pulled it out of a satchel that he was carrying like he was a newsman or, you know, or like a mailman uh, or an Amazon delivery guy. He's got this saddle or a satchel on his on his hip and he kind of just like takes the thing out and like kind of shows it to the horse and the horse goes completely ballistic and off off he goes. Off the leg goes, off the horse goes. The, the the only good thing that comes of this is in the next scene where Joe, who has figured out what is going on, basically tells Mabry, don't mess with my girl because I have amnesty in 48 states, including Puerto Rico. That's one of the best lines. I mean, Joe is pretty much my favorite thing about the first one, and that never changes. He just gets better and better. Yeah. Now, later on, we get another scene where there's another garden party and we have an opera singer because I don't know. And (laughs) (laughs) and Nicholas is there again. You have to stop questioning these Genovian customs. This is I'm not questioning Genovian customs because Genovia is not real. I'm questioning the screenwriting. (laughs) But here comes Nick. Nick's always around because he's staying in the palace. But he's got a date this time. He's got a date. And he sneaks off with Mia and forces a kiss on her. It it is so uncomfortable. And it's made worse because her foot pops. I understand they're trying to plant that she's attracted to Nick and not Andrew. But I've never known anybody to be the victim of a forced kiss and like it. That's the thing. She doesn't... She she likes it. But she tells him, get off because they're going to... Basically, she goes, we're going to get caught. And oh, yeah, and I have Andrew. Well, that's what... I mean, there's a lot that bothers me about this scene. And I feel like, yes, part of it is that Nick has gotten under her skin. And this is the moment that she realizes that she does like him too. But really this whole scene is forced for the quote unquote comedy of getting them to fall in the fountain. And that's where it's like you said before, it's a step forward and two back for Mia's character because yes, she's always been the klutzy one, but I feel like she would have moved past a situation like this, not only with the fountain, but putting her in a, uh, putting herself in a position to get caught. That's what bothers me more than anything about them sneaking around other than her character wouldn't do something that unethical. But with all these secret passages that you've set up in the castle, you're in a broom closet. You're in a, a very thinly veiled garden. And what makes it worse is that she has Lily there, her best friend. Lily should have been the sounding board for Mia's conflict this entire time instead of all the stupid sneaking around. I felt like Mia was, or I felt like Lily was in the movie because it's the sequel. We got to get the cast back. Yes, but she actually could have served such a greater purpose. I mean, I know that she wants to be there because she's going to Berkeley, she's pursuing her activism 
that nothing has changed in that regard. She's just soaking up as much political knowledge as she can. So that's all that all works for me. But her and Mia hardly have any screen time together. Mm -hmm. This is where you have the fit of my best friends not paying attention to me. And I came all this way. Right. And then have Mia break down and be like, well, I've been sneaking around with this other guy and I don't know what to do. And instead, Lily all of a sudden figured out how to flirt with guys and she's been trying to coach her with Andrew this entire time. Here's the problem with this whole thing. The foot pop fails here because we don't like Nick. At all. Yet. That's the problem. Explain to me why this scene had to happen before she has her moment at the Independence Day parade with the orphans. This works better if we, like Nick, but the character on screen, Mia, hasn't figured that out yet. Right, because that's when he lets his guard down. This works. Nothing in nothing that happens here sets up what happens after. Well, no, because I I hear what you're saying, and that would have been effective. But we're also still not supposed to know if we can trust him yet, because Mabry is the one who's pulling all of the strings here. But Nick clearly has a thing for. Well, no, you don't know that it's a thing for Mia because he brought a date. And you're still supposed to believe that he's playing her. But the thing is, when Mia's foot pops when he kisses her, we are supposed to root for what she wants. That's impossible to do here. Because not only do we not trust him... it No, here's the thing. It's not whether or not we know we can trust him. We out and out don't like this person. He didn't earn the foot pop yet. The foot pop shouldn't be a tell. Right. For for what her heart wants. It should be that he had to earn it. Because quite honestly, he has done nothing at all other than point out the fact that she doesn't really care for Andrew. He has not done anything that would have made himself attractive to her. Other than being Chris Pine. No, after the horse runs away, he does try and go comfort her, but he makes a joke. And then Joe kind of breaks up the whole thing. He was actually trying to be genuine in that scene. Right, but he inadvertently upsets her. That's the thing. She, He triggers her. That's the problem. The whole time, he triggers her. But the foot pops. We know what that means to her because she had the whole thing about it in the first film. Right. If that had not been a thing in the first film, we'd be like, oh, what is this? But because we know how important it is to her, it just seems like they planted this 10 minutes too early. No, and what's worse is that they made the foot pop involuntary. It's something that she wants. And... Yes, it's it's showing us that she wants the guy, but it should be something that she's in control of. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on now to this Independence Day parade. And we get introduced to the character Captain Kip Kelly. 
which is, you know, we talked last week about how many other films, specifically Pretty Woman, that Princess Diaries pulls from. I didn't think that I'd be sitting here discussing Princess Diaries 2, Royal Engagement, and go, oh my god, they ripped off Stripes. <laughs> Army training, sir! It's it's Stripes. This is a this is a ripoff of Bill Murray in Stripes. No, and it carries through the entire rest of the movie. If if, if it stopped with pretty girl riding in the Mustang just so he called out his crush on Lily, okay, fine. But this just goes on and on and on, and it wasn't really that funny the first time. Mm-hmm. It also boggled my mind how. Mabry is basically telling everybody what his plan is. I'm not going to wave the flag. I'm not going to wave the Genovian flag until we get a rightful heir to the throne. My nephew, and I'll see to it. It's like, oh my God. Is this a 1950s television western? What the hell is going (laughs) on here? I'm about to tell you all my evil plan after I tied her to the railroad tracks. (laughs) You'll never find her, Zorro, or whatever it is. Like, it's it's so 101. It's it's not 101. You fail 101 when you do that. (laughs) You have to retake the class. It it's mind-boggling how he just he, he is so, like, he's going to step on his own two feet telling everybody he's out to get her. The one redeeming moment that he has, though, is calling her interacting with the kids a publicity stunt. Yes. And he gets called on it. Yes. Because, quite honestly, I think this scene with the orphanage and the parade is the best scene in the series. It's not just the best scene in this movie. It's the best scene amongst the both both films. Right, because it's very reminiscent of when she signs the autograph for the first time for the two kids, which I can't remember if we talked about this last week. So if we did, I apologize. Lily and Charlotte, the repetition of those names. Yep. It's Gary Marshall's grandkids, and everybody is named either Lily or Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Aside from Lily, the best friend, and Charlotte, the assistant to Clarice. Right, and we get a Lily and Charlotte again in this film as a throwaway. How are your grandchildren? Lily and Charlotte. Whatever. It's cute. It's cute. But anyway, it, it, it harkens back to that scene where she signs the autograph for the first time, and she writes princess, and then she crosses it out. Because she's trying to be nice to the kids, but she's she still doesn't believe anything that's happened to her. And she's really not ready to step into the role yet at that point. Now, it's a complete 180 because Mia would have done this regardless of what her position was. Right. So we get to see her make this bold move. But it's in this is the first time we, we see Mia do something that's truly in her nature in the second film. Right, because she sees one girl is getting picked on. She finds out Abigail they're all Abigail Breslin. Yeah, 
Abigail Breslin. She finds out they're all orphans. She invites them all to be princesses for a day and march in the parade. It is a great scene. It really is. And it's, you know, it, it feels like Disney, scene. you know, it it reminds you of a Disney parade where the kids are just so excited. Like it it really leaves a lump in my throat because it does remind me of the parks, too. So here's the thing now that happens after this, because you you got to take one step forward. So we're going to take you two back. The slumber party scene. I have to admit to you, when we watched this movie the first time, I thought, oh, this is great. She invited the kids from the orphanage to have a slumber party at the palace. This is so great. When we watched it the second time, I said, no, these are, for the most part, adult women with some children who are princesses from around the world, and it's her bridal shower. This would have worked if she took the kids from the orphanage and said, I'm inviting them to a slumber party. Oh, by the way, it's also my bridal shower, so the rest of you are going to be in on the fun because I'm trying to do the right thing for these orphan children. I honestly thought that's what this was the first time. And I was so aggravated last night when we watched this again. I'm I'm truly hysterical because that is, of all the things that happen in this scene, not the thing that I thought you were going to take issue with. I mean, really, again, the whole point of this scene, and this is what bothers me. Every scene should have a point to move the story forward. And I've already said that, okay, you do get your kiss and that does affect the story with the fountain scene. But the bigger purpose of that scene was they were going for comedy and failed with her falling in the fountain. Here, I feel like this scene was to give Raven her song and to see Julie Andrews fly again, which I will be down for all day, every day, twice on Sunday, you know? So really, the attendees at the sleepover could have been anybody. They do cover it with the throwaway line that this was an act of diplomacy to invite all of these neighboring princesses to come to this bridal shower. Why why not a bachelorette party? Why not make it the most PG bachelorette party? This is not a bridal shower. The garden scene was a bridal shower. You would think. Or an engagement party. Something. But the point is, the guests could have been anybody. So yes, why not the orphans? I'm saying what this scene did for me specifically was that it dawned on me because you're getting so much time with Julie Andrews here because we're getting her surfing on a mattress, which the words Julie Andrews surfing on a mattress in a made up European country is not the craziest surfing scene I've ever seen. I've seen Snake Plissken surf through the streets of L.A. in Escape from L.A., and that was a little wilder than this. Again, not a sentence I thought I'd be saying out loud at any time in my life. But Clarice says it. She doesn't surf. She doesn't slide. But she's done a lot of flying in her day. 
And that makes the whole thing worth it. So she surfs on a mattress down a slide. She flies. Julie Andrews flies. It's the first time I realized not once, not once in this film has she worn black. OMG. Nice catch. And she never does. She does not wear black at all in this film. Thanks, Joe. (laughs) Well, no, but that's interesting because the awkwardness of Joe, I mean, he doesn't really propose, but he puts it all out there and says, think about it. And then they call it a friendship at one point. It does really toe the line of whether or not they're actually together. But yeah, if you're paying attention to the visual cues, which clearly I missed because I was just so happy to see her fly. You're right. She doesn't wear black anymore. And I didn't realize until now how much she actually does. I know they I know that Joe calls it out and there is the line of you've been wearing black for far too long, but she does continue to wear it. Even after that in the first one. She doesn't hear. Nice catch. Which what it, it makes what happens shortly after this scene sort of a head scratcher because you're right. He he kind of proposes to her, but sort of doesn't. And she has to think about it. And I don't know. And it I mean, it just sort of seems we I mean, yeah, you want them to end up together. Of course, we're going to root for Joe. But doesn't it seem just a little weird that a queen is going to retire, go into some sort of, well, I mean, not civilian life. I'm, I'm sure she still lives in a palace or in a wing of the palace, but that she's just going to marry her retired head of security. Like, the, I don't know, the premise of it, I guess, because she was a royal, just seemed a little odd to me that she's marrying a member of her staff even though she would no longer be the well no she still is the queen when she marries him because she hasn't stepped down yet does that does that make joe the king for like i don't know a couple of days or is it because he's not a blood relative that married into a blood he's not a blood relative to the royalty and neither is Clarice but she did marry a blood relative so I guess he can't become the king no that's like a double negative because neither of them were born in but she married but she married a a blood royal right and as they point out pointed out she ruled for years without a king by her well, side I mean, we just lost prince philip right but he was always his wife was the queen. He was always the prince. He never became the king. So I guess that's sort of your basis of comparison to answer your question as to does could Joe become the king? I guess that that sort of answers it right there. He's just the security guy. Right. But he's more than that. I'm, and she just, knows it and yeah. he knows it. But I'm saying just in title alone, I answered my own question. We're going to move on here. I honestly think Joe would renounce. It, it. Let's live in the world for a second where he could become the king. 
I feel like, I mean, he just threatened to kill a guy in Puerto Rico. I think, I don't think he wants the responsibility. No, I think he wants his finger on the button. (laughs) No doubt about that. And I'd be fine with that. Okay, let's move on here. Because now we get the scene where Mia sneaks out, Lily covers for her. Out the window she goes. This whole Rapunzel let down your hair thing is just nauseating. And they try to to call out how cheesy it is and, and make it, it worse. And even that, it made it, it worse. It makes it so much worse. You know, it's like when you smear paint and you try to, like, blend it and you only smeared it and you made it worse. That's sort of what this is like. And she sneaks off with him. And they're somewhere on the palace grounds and nobody can... This is like... Like a palace should be impenetrable. But yet, somehow, they're able to escape all of the security that clearly does not exist because the paparazzi shows up on a... Literally on a rowboat and starts filming them. Well, that was a setup. I understand Mabry that. Mabry called that in, but yeah. But how the hell did Mabry get him there? Even for Andrew's proposal. Yeah, like how did he know, you're right, how did he know where they were how going? How him there? Unless Mabry told him to trail Nicholas and we just didn't know that the entire time. But even with Andrew's proposal, they're right outside the gate, which by the way, that was a bonehead move of Andrew to do it in plain sight like that too. But they would not be up against the gate like that. No, they wouldn't be. I just don't understand how how you can easily penetrate a palace. Genovia needs help, folks. They need help with their security. Joe should not be retiring. I'm just pointing that one out there. Let's recap. She sneaks off. They dance. They fall asleep under a tree. She's engaged. She's engaged to the guy that we actually like in the movie. I understand she doesn't love him. I understand there is a lesson here that they're trying to teach. There's 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 somewhere that they're going. And, and like I said, I'm all about the message. But it doesn't change the fact that you are... I mean, we haven't seen them physically do anything other than canoodle under a tree and dance. So you haven't cheated on your fiancé, but you've kind of cheated on your fiancé, kind of, sort of. Um, the guy that we actually like, I, I don't know if I can stress this enough. It's the guy that we actually like. The big problem here is that I fail to see how this makes me a more likable. Well, it doesn't, but the difference here is now we've been given a reason to root for Nick because... He's defending Mia to Mabry and he says that, you know, Mabry's still insisting it should be somebody who's been born and raised in Genovia. That she couldn't possibly love the country as much as Nick does, blah, blah, blah. And he points out that she loves Genovia so much she's willing to marry someone that she doesn't love for the sake of her country. And, you know, that's where... Obviously, Nicholas's guard is down, but you realize that aside from seeing how kind Mia is, he he sees her for a real person, and he's he's focused on Mia's qualities, not 
Princess Amelia's qualities. Um, so you've been given all the right reasons to root for him now. But you're right. You're completely turned on Mia at this point. And what makes it even more confusing is that I feel like the reactions to her being out all night are all wrong. She's actually hurt because she thinks that Nicholas set her up. And she cares more about that than the repercussions. She's not even thinking about Andrew and what he's going to say. She's not thinking about her grandmother and what she's going to say. She's not thinking about this being exposed all over the place and how it's going to make her look. So I, I get that, that it's supposed to reveal her real feelings and that she's supposed to be angry because, or, or not even angry, but she's just truly hurt by Nicholas and, and she's upset that now it's not going to work out with him. But it still shows that Mia's being Mia. She's not thinking princess wise and she should be about how this is going you know to to present um and then this is coming after clarice's we never lose it speech we never lose it we're the people who find it you can't ever let your guard down in the public eye blah 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 she barely reacts to mia being caught by the paparazzi even though this is all over the television and she's in grandma mode which I guess shows character progression for both of them. But at the same time, this is totally not what you'd expect. Yeah, you would expect her to be furious and have to go immediately run damage control. Exactly. And it's like, after- which in that aspect, it's like, yes, that is what that is. Yes, you do that. You do that right now. Right, because she's upset about the broom closet and the fountain, which nobody saw. And she's basically telling Mia, if you don't learn now, when are you going to? Time is running out. And now you're in the 11th hour and she's about to get married. And she has a very public oopsie. And yet she doesn't care. Yeah. And it only, for me, at least, it only serves to make Andrew more likable. Because after that's happened, he's ready to walk out. They kiss each other. They go, nope, it's not, it's not working. It's not working for either of us. And he says, but you're going to be a great queen of Genovia, so we're going to get married tomorrow. He He's willing now to partake in this, basically, now it's a sham marriage, basically. But he's willing to do it for her. So that she can rule and not have her crown taken and not lose everything that she worked for. You just keep making him too likable. That's the thing. We're supposed to root for Mia, who's not very likable right now. We're supposed to root for Nick, who's only kind of sort of becoming likable right now. But but for them to get together, you're going to tear down this character who we all really like a lot. It would work out just fine if Mia had not become a dislikable character. Well, I mean, it was always going to be a sham marriage. But to me, Andrew's reaction is the most real to the whole situation because he's not hurt by it. He doesn't have any real feelings invested in this. He's and you're right. He does step up to say, I'm not, you know, I'll let you save face. But the other thing is that I think he's more concerned that she's going to back out he doesn't care 
that she kissed another guy or that she was with another guy. And as I said, it's, it's not because he's hurt by it. He's more worried that she can't actually go through with this at this point. Right. It has nothing to do with the cheating aspect. It's just that this is best for both of our countries. I'm worried you're not going to hold up your end of the bargain, and I'm worried about what this means for my future. And not even in a selfish way, because he's just so darn likable. Right. It's not, what about me? I want to be king. It's just... I'm going to be... Oh, never mind. <laughs> no, it's, it's not... It, it has nothing to do with ego. It's just, this is for the greater good. I can step up and put the, put all my issues aside. Right. And I'm still willing to do this, but can you? It's not even, can you marry me? It's, can you actually do this? Yeah. And it's, you know, again, he's just so darn likable. Like, I kind of wish he had, like, ran away crying. Because I would have found that annoying. You know? Yeah. He just handles it, and he just takes everything so well. I know. So now the next day... Is the wedding. We get Paolo. I was so happy to get Paolo because this is the last real belly laugh you have in this movie. You don't think so? The moose? Yes. No. When he makes that sound. Oh, come on. No. Well, you know why? Because... Because I don't expect it. And he just makes this sound. I was totally desensitized by the trailer. You probably don't remember the trailer. Don't remember a thing from it. This and the mattress surfing was the trailer. I, okay, I'll believe you. I have I have no recollection of it. Oh, but really? What would I have been doing at the age of eighteen no, 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 that no. I was going to catch the the trailer for Princess Diaries two Royal I'm, Engagement? I'm not talking about watching the trailer i'm talking about i can't believe that you find that funny because i didn't expect it coming and it's it's the look on his face along with the sound that just struck me as hysterical you who have ghostbusters on this freaking pedestal yeah this is what you're going for yeah okay you're telling me that if you didn't know that was coming that look on his face and that sound that I don't know how a human being made that sound. It's not at all funny. Five-year-olds do that. Not like that, they don't. Oh, my God. We're going to agree to disagree and move on. Let's move on to just the, the weirdest. I mean, not that I mind, but the weirdest cameo of all time. Oh, my God. I I know Stan Lee pops up in movies, but like I felt like that was happening a lot more in the MCU towards the end of his life because I don't want to say he had a cameo in Mallrats because like he had an actual role in Mallrats. Right, there was a purpose. But to what me, what is he doing here? This is where you go. Where where, where is Stan Lee coming from? I you know what. I'll I'll just chalk it up to don't hate the play, I hate the hate the game. You know, he's a wedding date. He made his way around and now he's in Genovia. Um so she gets twenty percent of the way up the aisle, runs away, her grandmother chases after her, 
decides, it's okay, we're not going to do this today. Here's the thing. To see Mia curled up in a ball like this, that she pushed herself as far as she possibly could, and, you know, you don't have a Clarice moment, you have a grandma moment. And she realized that Mia literally tried everything and couldn't actually go through with it. Um, And she respects that. It's a great moment between the two of them. However, I kind of wish that Mia never made it down the aisle. I wish that maybe she never even went into the church. Um... And, and that or, or, or even just didn't make it to that point. Maybe she talked to Joe and just ran out and then she's got to face the crowd. But I feel like you created this big dramatic moment or you wanted the big dramatic moment of her actually running out. But it just drags. And I, I feel like it's almost anticlimactic because the bigger moment is when you see her doubled over having trouble breathing for what she's about to do. The best part about this scene is that they didn't rip off the graduate, which when this scene started was what I swore they were going to do. Yeah. Because the only thing missing from this is we're going to need a bigger boat. You know, like they just (laughs) keep like, we know that they keep pulling from other films and I thought they're going to do the graduate here. It's, it's inevitable that they're going to do it and they didn't. That's actually really shocking. It, it's fine. It's fine. It, it is the, it's one of the best things that the movie does by not doing anything. You, you did great by not doing anything. Right, but they want her to make this big speech, and that's where I'm saying everybody's already seen her. I feel like it would have been so much more effective if she had never gone into the church and the first time everyone inside sees her is, is walking up and to make her speech saying, I can't do this. And again, Andrew takes it like a champ. Yeah. When he should be humiliated. Here, this is where you need to show up. This is where you need to be angry. He's just relieved. I mean, because he has found someone else at this point, which right. was Nicholas's date. I, I guess that's it. But he was still willing to go through with it. Right. And he thanks her for not making him. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess it just, it, it confirms it was like a game of chicken. He wanted out too, and she was the one brave enough to actually do it. But Well, that's it. he was never going to do that to her. She had to do it for herself. Right. Right? Um, I guess Parliament was taken by this because now they're willing to abolish the law, which they weren't willing to do 30 days ago. I guess they just saw how much she loved her country and that was enough. But they had to see her run out of the church to make this decision. It Again, I would have preferred her to just walk in the room and stare them down and say, this is not happening today. Rather than have the emotional runaway bride moment. Yes. Joe and Clarice get married. Instead, because, hey, we got a priest, we got guests, she's not in the wedding dress, but we got a wedding dress, let's do it. I mean, 
All right. I'm totally okay with that, especially because Clarice was the one to say, all right, no, let's let's get this done. I mean, at this point, what difference does it really make? <laughs> now, you're, you're up to her coronation day. It's coronation day. Disney loves a good coronation. They love it. They also love the fact that this... And now Joe's gone. The security in Genovia just gets worse and worse because somehow, some way, Nicholas just keeps finding his way into the palace. He left. He's gone. He moved out. He's no longer staying there. Yet he's on coronation day, not only got into the palace, but tracked her down privately again in the throne room of all places how does this keep happening you know what i can kind of overlook that because i think it's actually funny and we didn't discuss this scene where uh you know she's trying to learn from her grandmother how to interact with the people of genovia and everybody here i bought this for your table i bought this for i love that she asked him did you bring me a chicken for my table mm-hmm. yeah I'm all right because that's a mia thing it is. She always had that sarcasm. Yeah, yes. And that line works. But I forget about it because the rest of the movie is so bad. Unfortunately, that whole thing falls flat on me because this movie is forgettable. That's I mean, that's kind of where we're going with this and I think that's kind of where I am at this point. The lesson to be learned here is great, but I'm not sure that this is how you do that lesson justice i feel like there's too many people that are in too many compromised positions too often and they never really hone in on how we're going to make this work for the character while also keeping these characters likable for you the audience perhaps they made Andrew too likable. Maybe that's the big problem. No, no, it's not. Because even if his likability overshadowed Mia, she should have never become dislikable, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. We should still be rooting for her. And she really doesn't give us much to go on here. Correct. Except for the orphanage scene, which I will agree with you is is one of the best scenes in both films, powered by a Kelly Clarkson song. I mean, it really doesn't get much better than that. I mean, I've had my say. What what what's your final review of Princess Diaries two Royal Engagement? I mean, we were critical of Princess Diaries, but. Overall, I mean, it still holds up to this day and it's definitely got the rewatchability factor. We both criticized certain things that they did, a lot of things that they did, but found the fun and found the movie enjoyable. I've always found it enjoyable. That's the thing. I have always loved that movie. It's just that, and and I will still rewatch it. It's just that certain things that I enjoyed about it when I was younger don't translate over now. And I question them now, but it still doesn't make it a bad movie, even though it rips off Pretty Woman three ways to Sunday. Or maybe it's, I mean, it's the same director, so is he paying homage to himself? 
regardless. Yeah. That was last week's discussion. This does not nearly hold up in the same way. I don't even want to rewatch it because of the characters. I, I'll give you, I'll do you one better. I don't even want to rewatch it because of Julie Andrews. I love seeing her fly again. But that and the orphanage scene are the two shining moments in an otherwise dismal movie. And it's not even like you can enjoy more time with these characters. Joe, yes, but not even Mia. It's I, I don't even care what Mia is up to. And I, I'm saying it would have been a much better story if she was trying to navigate how to rule the country. Now that, you know, we leave her at the end of the first one, she's flying into Genovia. We know that she's got this massive task ahead of her. Let's see that play out. Now she's in Genovia. Let's see her follow in her father's footsteps. That should have been your A plot of how she's going to address the task at hand. The B plot should have been the love story and the conflict. And you're also father following in your father's footsteps too because that was the whole conflict with the mother that he married the artsy girl and she realized she couldn't do it and they had to cover up a divorce. It, it yeah. would have brought the entire thing full circle. And if God forbid they do another one, I hope that that's the story they go with and or, or maybe make it more of a prequel with the father because I can't see trying to build off of this more. This movie is the definition of uh, a sequel. You can have too much of a good thing. And quite honestly, I mean, we haven't discussed a ton of sequels on this show i mean we've done our fair share we've done more of the live action we've done almost all of the live action remakes i don't think this is as bad as santa claus 3 but it's pretty close santa claus 3 is probably, up to this point, the worst sequel we've ever reviewed on this show. I have one for you. This is Teen Beach 2. There are elements there, but it completely negates what the first one does. So Teen Beach 2 completely eliminates the first Teen Beach. I. It is... I think for me, as I sit here right now, I think it depends on my mood and, and, and the day um, where I stand on whether that's the worst sequel as opposed to Santa Claus 3. You know what it is? With a movie like Teen Beach, because it's a decom, you sort of have your standards low. Like, the high school musical sequels are just so bad. Um... But your standards are sort of low. When you have something like the Santa Claus and you have something like Princess Diaries, because Disney puts so much into it with money and marketing and talent, it's not a made-for-TV film. This is a major theatrical release. I mean, this is going to be your summer blockbuster. And this is what you gave us? I mean, it's 
it's not as bad as Teen Beach 2. It's not as bad as the third Santa Claus film. But I think as... I mean, and they're they're unwatchably stupid. I think this is worse than the High School Musical sequels. Because you squandered Julie Andrews and Anne Hathaway. Right. That's what I think. We're interested in knowing what you have to say. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. You're always looking for that touch of Disney. I know that we certainly are. And Kelly has more than your touch. She's got everything. If you're looking for art prints, stationery, greeting cards, apparel, home decor, she's got you covered. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. You can scope out everything that she's offering right now at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. Speaking of sequels, (laughs) and God, I hope they're good. And in one case, a spinoff. We have some new clips from Black Widow and Loki. Um, maybe I'm still kind of stung with the WandaVision finale, and I think I'm still kind of stung by Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I think was fine on its best day. It's fine. But I'm not getting any more excited for any of this MCU stuff with any more clips that we're seeing. I should be, like, bouncing off the walls for Loki because I love Loki as a character and I think Hiddleston is great. But based on how they wrapped up WandaVision and based on how Falcon and the Winter Soldiers just kind of was, I'm not really getting jazzed here. I got to be honest with you. I couldn't disagree with you more. I am stoked for Loki. I love everything that I've seen so far from the trailers and the clips. And I love that much like WandaVision, they're starting to mess with us. Because instead of doing this as a Friday release, they're going to start doing it on Wednesdays. And there's been a lot of rumblings that Loki is not going to come out in June and they might just drop it in May. Because they've they've been hinting at it. Marvel had the entire year slated. And what's interesting is that the way that Loki would end now... It would be the release of episode five in that series. Black Widow would come out that week. And then Loki's going to wrap up. So people are, from what I'm seeing on social media, people are not buying into the fact that they're going to drop a major movie in the middle 
of a series. And I tend to agree with that because Marvel, the way that they've been cranking everything out, you're going to have something big every week. Why would, and why would you steal Loki's thunder with Black Widow? Which I am also excited for because I'm excited to learn the backstory. God help us if we don't find out what finally happened in Budapest. I hope we get the Hawkeye cameo there. Um, but I also, I, I mean, the only thing that I'm, that makes me, I don't want to say not excited for it cause I still am, but I just wish we would have gotten the black widow movie before Endgame. I, I don't know. For some reason, the posters that they dropped last week that we discussed, I guess seeing the characters in their costumes for some reason got me like more excited than this. I, I don't know why. I can't really put my finger on it. I think I just have this cautious optimism. Maybe because we just like literally just watched Endgame. It was on TNT over the weekend and... I had it on and then we just stopped what we were doing and because decided to watch it. So it's good. too good. It's too good. Yeah. So I think like now everything sort of pales in comparison. Exactly. Okay. Talking about, you know, sequels, they sit there and you go, oh, a sequel. I don't want that to happen with Disenchanted because I have pounded the table for for Disenchanted on this show and I've gone so far as to say that it that the first film has become one of my favorite movies, period. Forget Disney. It's just become one of my favorite movies, period. No, we gave it a glowing review, but you have just grown to love that. that we did it. That was like episode seven. Yeah. We did that in the very, very beginning. But you have just come to love it so much more every time. you. And it's an Idina movie. Idina Menzel's in this movie, but I think you love it more than I do. You got Amy Adams and Adam Shankman announcing that Disenchanted is now in production. Social media frenzy today. I hope that Disney does things like this moving forward. Because what I love is we had a picture from set. They they announced that they're into production. So they're taking us on the ride with them. But you have the entire cast involved on social media Disney Plus is responding to Walt Disney Studios' social media posts. The whole thing is just awesome. It was fun yeah, tracking it It's a today. lot of fun. Dropping on Disney Plus in 2022. Let's move on to some parks news here. Because there's a lot. There's a lot. A lot uh, of positive. Yeah. So Disneyland Paris is reopening on June 17th. That's very exciting. Domestically. I mean, God, so much changes in a week. I had sat here and said that I had hoped that by the time we got to Disney in November, perhaps we would be mask free. And it and I said it, but we're probably in them until, <clears throat> excuse me, the end of the year. No more. Not at least when you're outside. No more. The masks are coming off when you are outdoors. Yes, if you are on transport or transit, you know, you're on the buses, yes, the masks come on. If you are in a restaurant and you're not seated, the masks are on. If you're on a queue or, or if you're seeing Festival of the Lion King, yes, the masks are on. But I am so excited to walk around Disney Springs and not have to wear the mask. I might get a turkey leg 
just because I can eat it as I walk. This is, I'm, you know, and I know there are a lot of people that are on many sides of the fence here. There's not just two sides. There's apparently a lot of gray area But here. don't make it political. That That's it. Let's just be happy. I'm thrilled. I'm excited. I don't know what else to say other than I'm thrilled that I'm excited. The, the, the return to normal is almost completely here. As we sit here... Uh, 14, 14 months later, almost to the dip. For, actually, as we're sitting here recording this, 14 months later to the day of the shutdown of Walt Disney yes. World. Yeah. How crazy. Um, yeah, the, the, we're here. We're, it, and it kind of, there were times where it felt like we weren't going to get here, but we're here. And it's exciting. And I, 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 I saw on social media today that they started taking down some of the plexiglass and some of the partitions. So we're not in the gold judges booth anymore at the Coliseum hitting the goal light. And and I think they said that um, Tower of Terror is now filling their ride vehicles to 100 percent park capacity according to Chapik, is increasing. We don't know to exactly what or when, but it's increasing. I, I think with all of the fireworks that are getting tested, and I'm rambling here, like, but we're, we're so close. I mean, we are right there. We're right there. No, it's very exciting. But one thing to keep in mind as we are navigating this new territory, regardless of what your feelings are on the masks or capacity is that the cast members are all dealing with this for the first time, too. So please be kind to them. Yeah, for the love of God, just be nice to the cast members. All they're doing at the end of the day is their job. That's their job. Just let them do their job. Their job that they are very happy to return to. For sure. For sure. Don't make them regret it. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. You can go to monorailradio.com where there's links to all of the social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. The email address is there and links to everywhere that you can find the show. Thank you guys so much again. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.